Welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan and my co-host Chris. So we're going to start this week off with a story uh, about our relationship, I guess. Chris and I have been together for sixteen years. Yep. And we've had very few fights, I think, comparative to the normal relationship. But we have had a recurring and one specifically very strong fight early on in our relationship before we realized what was going on. So at one point, Chris and I played a game of Scrabble together. Yep. And uh, Morian was dramatically in the lead. And then in a series of three turns, Chris played Aqua with the Q on a triple letter score, and then the next turn, Aquatic, on a double word score, and then on the next turn, Aquatical, with a triple word score. It might have been where it only ended on a double word score. We are not looking at a board game of Scrabble right now, but, you know, this is kind of the repeating stories off the top of our head. But the the important thing is I went from being very far behind Morgan to dramatically ahead. And at that point, is when I started nervously laughing. And also for anybody paying close attention, yes, it turns out that aquatical is not a valid word. We only discovered that many years later. The laughter lasted for multiple rounds of the game, at which point I kicked Chris out of my dorm room. Right. And into the next day, we had a break where we didn't see each other. We were both resident assistants in the dorms. I was working from the RA office. Morgan came downstairs into the office and took a sigh and a much reserved, like, I'm going to be the better person type, okay, so, and then I... Continued laughing. Right. And Morgan slammed the door and left. And luckily for us, that was a Friday. And then I was gone for the weekend. And while Chris was gone for the weekend, I was seriously considering whether this was the end of our relationship, because that is rude. It is rude, and not something I wanted to be doing. Um, But we learned from there, and a series of other games that we ended up playing, that uh, it's actually pretty bad for our relationship to play competitive games, even though we both like games a lot, or at least play competitive games together. And it turns out that when it comes to competitive games, I am a sore loser, and Chris is a very sore winner. Yeah, that's true. So, several years later, we decided we were going to give Scrabble another try. And we tried that. A very similar dynamic ended up happening where I was losing, and then I realized that I could get really far ahead by making a move that would give me a bunch of points and also cut off a section of the board so that Morgan couldn't end up making any further moves in there and bring the game to an end much faster. So I got very frustrated because who plays Scrabble strategically? And then at that point, Morgan threw a dictionary at my head. In my defense, it was a very small, soft cover pocket dictionary. That's true. It still was a dictionary, though. Yes. But I think at this point we realized that it was more than just either one of us being um, bad at playing games in a specific way, but also something about the dynamics of those games that meant that those kind of games weren't great for our relationship. So this week we're talking about the way that people play and enjoy games. And 
Relatedly, a lot of these issues came up in your ActivityPubConf keynote speech last year. Right. And it may sound weird. Why would this come up at a talk at a technical conference, right? The other things that were in the talk might make sense as in terms of a lot of it was about technical design choices, like the choice to use object capabilities, etc. Part of it was about social and harm reduction techniques on networks. And part of it was about an ethical framework about viewing our work as maximizing agency. And then the final part that came in was about viewing our work through the lens of game design. So where did that last one come from? So I think that a lot of the work that we do, both in free and open source software and also in terms of all sorts of kinds of crafting, Mm -hmm. can be seen from a perspective of game design. And I attribute a lot of this thinking from my brother, who's helped me see a lot of it that way, as in terms of game mechanics are a way of simulating and seeing a lens for thinking about reality. Yeah, so in that talk, you talked about the differences between the board game risk and the board game pandemic. Right. So this is another scenario where we learned a lot about our relationships and also the relationships with our friends. So when I grew up, I played the game risk with a bunch of my friends. And, you know, for anybody who hasn't played risk, it's a highly competitive game, sometimes involves a lot of social engineering and backstabbing of each other. And one of the observations was whenever we'd have the end of a game of risk, everybody would end up being really upset at each other and sometimes wouldn't talk for several weeks. Maybe not every game, but like often enough for it to be a very defining aspect of it. Um, And we also discovered one time you tried playing risk with my group of friends. You were just like, nope. Yep. I'm out. So... But it's kind of funny, because if you look at the game Pandemic, you know, I mean, partly because it's also just a map of the Earth, Mm -hmm. but the board looks very similar in many ways. You've got a map of the planet, you've got these different connections between them, you've got a bunch of different pieces playing as markers on the board, but for some reason, at the end of the game of Risk, everybody would end up being bitter at each other, but at the end of a game of Pandemic, everyone... I've never had a game of Pandemic win or lose where people didn't kind of want to walk away giving each other a hug. And nothing about the rules of the game's risk or Pandemic say you should end the game by fighting or hugging each other. In fact, it would be very inappropriate and feel artificial if you actually put in the rules, hugs are mandatory, mandatory hugs, right? And yet this is emergent behavior that grows out of these games. Mm -hmm. And we can see that in our systems, oftentimes uh, the ways that we design the systems that we build, even if the systems don't specifically say, here's what is going to happen and here's what you should do, it results in behaviors and patterns over and over again. And what I like about game design is it provides us ways to be able to think structurally about what kind of dynamics we're creating. And just tangentially about board games as a lens for thinking about reality, we also got a copy of Pandemic Legacy for (laughs) Christmas this year, and we started playing it in January of 2020. 2020. 
And we had to stop playing that game because the actual pandemic of COVID-19 happened and our friends can't come to our house right now. Yep, that that was a very uncomfortable uh, life and reality merge right there. Yeah, for sure. Um, but that's definitely a tangent. Um, so let, let's let's get back. What 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 do we want to talk about today? So today we're talking about the eight kinds of fun specifically, and this started uh, between 2001 and 2004 as a series of lectures and workshops exploring game design by Robin Hunicky, Mark LeBlanc, and Robert Zebeck. And I sincerely apologize if I butchered your names. Right. After these lectures, they also put out a paper called MDA, A Formal Approach to Game Design and Game Research. So MDA stands for Mechanics, Dynamics, and Aesthetics. And the way that the structure of creating games and playing games works is you have the designer that creates a game, and then you have the player that consumes the game. Right. And they kind of meet in the middle through those actions of creating and consuming. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the paper lays out that, you know, we can see the construction of game process starting from a first lens of rules moving towards the system, moving towards fun. But there's another way to look at that, which is... Goes from the mechanics of the game, to the dynamics of the game, to the aesthetics of the game. Ha! MDA. And then the paper also goes into the idea that that's kind of the direction for the creator of mechanics to dynamics to aesthetics, but... If you are looking from the perspective of the player, it's the reverse direction of aesthetics to dynamics to the mechanics. So in this paper, they very briefly mentioned the eight kinds of fun, and then they expanded somewhat upon that via examples. So we're going to just walk through what each one of those is very briefly and then get into it in detail. But from the perspective of the paper, the first kinds of fun they mention is sensation which is the game as a sense pleasure and fantasy which is the game as make-believe narrative the game as drama challenge the game as an obstacle course fellowship the game as a social framework discovery the game as uncharted territory expression the game as self-discovery submission the game as pastime Now, note that the paper doesn't say that all games end up really exploring all of these in the same way, or that all players value them in the same way. In fact, it actually emphasizes that different players value different things, and different games provide different amounts of these kinds of things in different ways. So we're going to expand on these, and we'll also link a few articles in the show notes and a good podcast episode that expand on these in depth in regards to video game development, tabletop role-playing games, and just game design in general. But we want to talk about this in relation to the themes of this show, FOSS and crafts. But also a bit of games, because let's face it, we're nerds. Right. So let's get into each one of these topics and just kind of discuss them. So let's reintroduce them one by one. The first one is Sensation. Which is the game as sense pleasure. So in a board game, for instance, this might be kind of the look and the feel of the map, the pieces that you're holding, Mm -hmm. um, 
kind of the aesthetics of it. Yeah, and maybe in an RPG or a video game, you might have descriptors like the smells of the restaurant that you're in or the clink of the dishes at the bar. So, okay. Um, I can see how this applies to the game having cool-looking pieces or characters. It feels like there's got to be some pretty obvious ties into crafts then as well. Yeah, so a lot of crafting is tactile, right? I really enjoy going into a craft store and petting all of the fabric or yarn or fiber available so that I can get a sense of how it's going to feel as a finished product. And then the motion of crafting is often very tactile as well. Yeah, I mean, even the end product, right, is still a sensation, right? Looking at the finished product, I mean, that's... I mean, even in a board game Mm -hmm. or in a video game, the end product of that character on the board is the result of somebody having performed some kind of craft, right? Yeah. And for crafts uh, more broadly, the end product is often going to be something that you're going to wear if you're doing textile crafts. So the sensation of wearing a scarf around your neck is very different if you're using synthetic fiber yarn or alpaca or wool because they all feel different yeah some people who actually play a lot of these board games some of these tabletop games actually give you uh unfinished unpainted pieces for the players to actually engage Mm -hmm. in a craft component right into their 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 character or sometimes people draw uh, their character on their character sheet right after the fact right Yeah, that's pretty common so how does this relate to foss So I think it ties into a number of ways. Uh, One obvious way that we could perceive it is free software tools that provide the ability to create sensation things, right? So Blender would be a good example for Mm -hmm. 3D models. Uh, So would be various music composition tools like LMMS and, you know, uh, stuff like Krita. Um, for painting. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, on the other side of things, it's also what is the aesthetic that our software actually gives us? And I think the most common way that people think about this, and this is a big criticism of free software sometimes, is oh, free software people don't care enough about the aesthetic as in terms of like the UI and UX experience of using some sort of piece of software. I don't think that's always true, mm. but I think that it's, a criticism that we have to really take and take seriously a lot, right? Especially if you're trying to get people who are not free software developers to become free software users. Right. And those first impressions and also that feeling of comfort, and sometimes comfort is just a matter of familiarity, Mm -hmm. can be really important. But I think there's another way that this can tie in. So if we look at what people sometimes kind of view as the anti-sensation of like the command line and blah, 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 and, you know, doing everything in plain text. In in a sense, a lot of the appeal and aesthetic of those things is this kind of sense of aesthetic that's grown around it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you see in Hollywood movies all the time, the kind of fetishization of the command line, right? Like you've got- The hacker with the glowing glasses and the- clacky uh, mechanical keyboard that they're using. Yeah, right. And I do get a lot of satisfaction out of a lot of hacker tools that feel like they're kind of built for that kind of sensation. And, you know, so I I think that in many different ways, sensation does play into free software. Mm -hmm. So the next one is fantasy. Which is the game as make-believe. 
So I feel like there's obvious ties into this for games, because I mean, lots of games happen in, I mean, fantasy is sometimes even considered its own setting, but in yeah. fact, all settings are fantasy, right? Yeah, it's, it's the game immersion, being able to be someone else or something else. Yeah, and also escape, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so like, I don't live in a world of magic, but I might enjoy being able to be in a world that provides magic, partly even because it's something I can't experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, also, if you look at the reverse with science fiction, sometimes those are aspirationally things we'd like to be able to approach. And then eventually they actually do become things we approach. But, you know, so, I mean, fantasy, I think, often becomes kind of an amount of setting. But I think it's also a certain amount of psychological escape when the world seems really hard it's nice to play a game where you are embodying a character where the world is very different. Mm-hmm. And it, that can also give your character a lot of excuse to be, feel really empowered and cool in ways that sometimes the world doesn't feel as empowering to you, right? Yeah. So how does that tie in with crafts then as well? Well, I think there's a couple of ways that it ties in with crafts. I mean, an obvious one would be something like costuming or cosplay. So you are making things to bring to turn yourself into another character another sense i think would be in kind of a historical reenactment sense so i spin using a drop spindle because that is how the greeks and romans made thread in order to make all of their things so by going through the motions of doing that I use it as a way to contextualize the lived experiences of the people that I am studying and writing about. That's kind of interesting because in a certain sense, what you're saying is that even historical fiction, which we kind of view as the watching movies about old time things, except this time they're serious and they're not involving all those like elves and magic and stuff like that. In a certain sense, you're actually saying that is fantasy. Well, it is a fantasy if you are imagining yourself as a Roman matron spinning wool for her family. In fact, one of the main tools I used in learning how to spin was the fiber arts guild in the local SCA, which is the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is basically about the fantasy of recreating past cultures. So how do you think that fantasy relates to uh, the enjoyment of free software? Well, I mean, one way it could tie in is games that are free software games, of course, right? But I think there is a certain amount of fantasy escapism, even in the work that we do, where it's related to the sensation. But the ideas sometimes that we have of embodying a role, I mean, go figure, you and I both believe in things such as gender as performance, it's no surprise that we would view all sorts of things as, you know, constructivist performance, right? Mm -hmm. So even performing the roles of something like, you know, I'm this kind of developer, I'm fulfilling this kind of role, can actually be a certain amount of taking a fantasy and actually fulfilling that by embodying that role that exists. And then this also creates another diversity issue where if the kind of mythology that we have is only for people who appear to be of a certain ethnicity and gender representation, then that makes it very hard for people to kind of perform that role mentally, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so let's move on to narrative. Which is the game as drama. So in games, I think that the place where we see narrative come up the most is in terms of role-playing games. And, you know, like tabletop role-playing games and etc. Where the players have a lot of space to be able to craft story. But Mm -hmm. sometimes, I guess, narrative really plays in in both directions of either a narrative that's prescriptive and that comes with a game. You know, like here you're playing a game where everybody's a mouse trying to escape the the cats or everybody's driving an underwater ship or something like that. All of those things are a narrative that are prescribed, but a lot of narrative is also what the players bring to the table, but especially in something like a role-playing game where a person is actually embodying some sort of role and part of the story, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are also more broadly outside of just role-playing games, more types of games that involve narrative. I mean, there are definitely narrative video games. I mean, maybe almost all video games involve narrative, but how much, right? Yeah. And then there are also things like choose-your-own-adventure games, which follow a narrative that you as a player have some agency over changing. Yeah, I mean, like, if you you go from the choose-your-own-adventure book that was popular when, I guess, you and I were kids, but probably never after that, the kind of video game equivalent of that is interactive fiction, Mm -hmm. right? And that allows a certain amount of human control over where the story is going, but only within the realms of whatever the developer has actually handed the player. But it often is much more freedom than what the player themselves might have actually been able to do in some other kinds of video games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so how does narrative tie into a crafting context? Well, I mean, the obvious one would be literature, right? If you are... like writing stories then you are constructing a narrative and then you can build on that with maybe graphic novels or comics even where you have a narrative that is illustrated but still follows a progression in more kind of traditional forms of artwork you also have images or songs that convey a narrative within them as well yeah yeah that's true and i mean i guess Many types of aesthetic productions are telling a narrative, even if that's not their primary focus, right? Like Mm -hmm. making, generally, if somebody's sculpting something, there's some sort of narrative attached to that sculpture, right? Generally, but not always, yes. Yes, okay. Narrative implies that it's telling a story. And you can have object histories where the sculpture has its own narrative because it was owned by a Jewish family in the Holocaust and then it was taken in the occupation and then they had to backtrack to find the original owners for repatriation so you have narratives within an object of art potentially within the context of where it existed yeah and then but you also might have a statue of i mean for example if you've got a greco-roman myth Mm -hmm. and there's some sort of scene being portrayed that's a narrative that it's that it's tying into right yes and i mean certainly plenty of things about vases and stuff like that Lots of vases have narrative uh, depictions on them, yes. Okay, so I guess this month becomes much trickier when it comes to Foss, maybe at least because it feels like a lot of the things we said that would be relevant kind of came in the fantasy side as well in the last section. But, I mean, maybe that's not bad that it's it's useful to remember that fantasy and narrative are not very far apart from each other very frequently. Well, but narrative can 
include nonfiction as well. That's true. So the embodiment of some sort of story that we tell when you embody and you so there's the performance of the conceptual idea and then there's that actual the the other side of the performance right the side before and the side after maybe i have a fun narrative thing for foss how about documentation the narrative of how code came to exist and the process that it went through yeah that's true code as you write it there's the code that's being executed But source code is very frequently the story of the thing that's being performed as actually for the humans that are actually working on it, Mm -hmm. right? And documentation and comments are all tie in with that. Mm -hmm. And so too does, you know, the, I guess you could, I'm faltering here a little bit, but I think that the, you could even say that user interface ties in with that, right? Like Mm -hmm. if the very idea of the desktop metaphor is trying to provide something that's a familiar narrative from the external world. And then, of course, eventually the external world becomes so represented that a new generation, you know, when somebody sees an old, I'm sure you've seen those stories of like some kid who sees a floppy disk and they're like, oh, cool, you 3D printed the save icon. Yep. So, yep, I think narrative ties into free software in that way as it ties into all technology. Cool. So how about challenge? So that is the game as an obstacle course. So with games, this is often the thing you're trying to beat, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess for many players, this is where um, people end up being optimizing as in terms of trying to prove something sometimes, but whether to themselves or to others. And I think this actually ties in with our initial story You were saying when we were kind of talking about this pre-show that you enjoy challenge, but it depends on where the challenge is directed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I enjoy challenge if it's challenging myself. So puzzles or my vocabulary or my own mental recall. But I really dislike challenge that pits the players against each other. But if player players can collaboratively, I guess we're we're jumping ahead since the next one's fellowship. But players mm-hmm. players can collaboratively work on some kind of challenge. But I'm going to shut up on that yeah. because that's the next section. We might cut this out. Uh maybe we'll find out. This is also sometimes where sometimes people end up criticizing the person who gets so focused on challenge. They can end up destroying a bunch of the other aesthetics, the other types of fun. The power gamers. The power gamers, although. Privately, in a private setting where it's not hurting anybody, that can actually be a really fun experience yeah. if it's... To optimize the challenge. Right. So so I feel like this is pretty obvious from a game's perspective. Mm-hmm. From a craft's perspective, how do you think this ties in? Well, I think challenge is a large part of craft. So, um, and I'll, I'm going to come back to this when we get to rule eight because it's related, but... Once you learn how to do a craft, you typically don't stay at the first stage forever. You learn the first stage, and then you learn how to expand on it and do something more intricate, more elaborate, more advanced. And then you continue honing your skills, because part of it is the challenge of seeing if you can do something. So it's starting with just doing something simple, and then you maybe use a pattern to do the next thing. And then eventually you get to the point where you can create your own patterns or don't need a pattern at all. Right. So in cooking, for example, 
first thing I learned how to cook was spaghetti as in terms of take a box of dried noodles and open a jar of marinara, right? And that's a very beginner thing to do, but it's also an entry point to future things I wanted to be able to do, right? You know, and maybe even a very advanced version of that would be the satisfaction of making your noodles from scratch and making your sauce from scratch, right? But it can still be an entry point and the, that vision of the future challenge you'd like to get to can still be useful even if, when you're at overcoming earlier challenges, right? Yeah. And you can use that first step to still create a challenge. So you're using a sauce that's pre-made, but you can add your own spices to that existing sauce, which is easier than making your own sauce from scratch. And I almost always add spices to any sauce I'm using. Yes. So, uh... How does uh, challenge fit in with free and open source software? Well, there's obviously the challenge of wanting to learn to program, just as the challenge of wanting to learn any craft, right? Mm -hmm. That's definitely true for me. I get really excited and get into a lot of problems, you know, because they're difficult, right? And the, the thrill of learning and pushing yourself in a domain that you weren't able to do, and sometimes in a free and open source software context, and I think a commons context in general, is not just being able to do something and show that you can do it, but to be able to overcome a challenge that's blocking other people from doing other things. If you are a contributor to Blender, for instance, as a developer for Blender, when you add a new tool, you might have a big challenge in figuring out how to build that, but you're also opening up an experience for many other people to be able to build other interesting things, which them might themselves also be challenges, right? But so, so proprietary software licenses are partially the challenge that you're trying to overcome? I guess so. Although, you know, that kind of ties in with this whole thing of is free software always in catch-up mode, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think definitely that ends up being in true where people are trying to challenge, like, can we, you know, catch up to the latest proprietary thing? But sometimes the most exciting things are when it's not in catch-up mode. Can we do something new that nobody's done before, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to fellowship. Which is the game as a social framework. Well, and for games, I mean, we <laughs> we already talked about this quite a bit. But, you know, there's a whole dynamic of collaborative game versus cooperative game, or even yeah. a game that could be on both sides, right? You might have three play, three versus three, you know, a team of people versus another team of people. But yeah. And we started bringing this up in the challenge section where we talked about how a challenge could be a challenge against you, yourself or your own mental abilities, or a challenge against other players and this dichotomy between challenge and fellowship uh, and how they maybe intersect is a lot of the reason that uh, Chris and I can't play Scrabble together. So, but we can play Bananagrams, but why, why can't we play Bananagrams instead of Scrabble when they look very similar? Yeah, so for context, Bananagrams is very similar to Scrabble, where you are working out words and then you connect them in an intersecting grid. But for Bananagrams... Everyone is doing their own grid. And so basically it's a challenge of your own mental acuity with the additional challenge of everyone else's playing. So you have kind of have a timer set based off of how quickly the other players are hitting benchmarks. And that's sometimes called multiplayer solitaire Mm -hmm. because it's that one, unlike Pandemic, you're not working together to achieve a shared goal. 
but I think the important thing here is that it doesn't have what's called take that mechanics, where you can interfere with other people's plans. You can a little bit by mm-hmm. forcing everybody to grab another piece. But that's but in order to force people to grab another piece, you need to complete your own benchmarks. Right. So there's a little bit of plan interference, but it's not the primary thing. It's because you've made your own progress that somebody else's plan might be interfered with. So it's kind of interesting because this one's not necessarily, we're not necessarily talking about collaboration here, but what's interesting about Bananagrams is that we still are able to get a bunch of people around the table and have a socially enjoyable time where we're sitting together without people feeling as much like they're upset at each other. And that still feels like it ties in with a sense of fellowship, which is that Mm -hmm. whole idea of just showing up together. Yeah. And I mean, there's still limitations to that. So, for example, if you're playing either Scrabble or Bananagrams and you've got one seven-year-old and then five adults, then that seven-year-old is going to obviously have a handicap because their vocabulary is going to be smaller. Right. So there isn't really a way to fix handicaps in these kinds of games where well, well, you're just can, playing against your own mental acuity. There can be if you house rule it, right? Yeah. And some some gay pe- groups people do house rule it. And I think house ruling didn't even show up on our agenda of things to talk about here. But that's a an interesting topic for another time. But mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that that's completely right. So what's interesting about fellowship is that it both ties together. Well, and one other element of it is role-playing games very frequently you have a group you might have the game master who's providing the general structure but then you've got a team of players who are trying to accomplish their goals within that gaming structure and they all work together as well mm-hmm. within a narrative which is you know one of the things we talked about in here and one of the big anti patterns i think in role playing games is when the game master perceives themselves as being them versus the players yeah right and how do you even provide where as opposed to providing an environment that gives the players challenge right and so i think there's a lot of interesting dynamics we can see in how fellowship plays out across games but how might that also tie in with from a craft perspective well there are a lot of collaborative craft projects and i mean i think The most obvious one that comes to my mind that has kind of been a repeated pattern throughout history is my mother taught me how to do most of the crafts that I know, and her mother taught her. And I remember sitting in a room with my mother and my grandmother, um, and we were all doing parts of the same project. Mm -hmm. Um, You also have things like unity quilts and stuff like that, where different people contribute... uh, a small part of the whole that is then kind of put together. Right. Well, and that's an interesting example of fellowship in terms of something kind of like pandemic where you're all trying to accomplish a shared goal. But Mm -hmm. in a certain way, as in terms of multiplayer solitaire that we talked about with Bananagrams, isn't a stitch and bitch kind of like that? Yeah, a stitch and bitch uh, or knitting circle, if you want to be less vulgar, where you have a bunch of people just sitting around in a circle talking while they're all working on their own individual projects is another kind of way to build up a community fellowship uh, around crafting. Yep. So how does fellowship play into FOSS? Well, I mean... There's somebody making things. The whole purpose of the commons is they're hoping that other people benefit from it. Now, that can take on a number of different ways, right? There's a classic throw the code over the wall thing where either an individual or a group of people primarily work independently 
or sometimes a company, uh, and then provide something to the public who then do themselves also benefit. Mm -hmm. And there's fellowship in terms of other people benefiting from the commons, but it's in that scenario, it's primarily whatever size of that team, whether one or more, working together on their side of fellowship and then the sharing with the external community. Mm -hmm. Now, how much you expand from there can really depend on your community. A lot of communities from there sometimes move into just, uh, yeah, we'll take bug reports, right? But then do you create a chat room for you and the other contributors, right? Also, do you bring in people who are not developers? Do you bring Mm -hmm. in graphic artists to your project? Do you present at conferences and then interact with other developers from other projects? Absolutely. So hopefully fellowship is an enormous part of what we end up doing in the free and open source software world. Mm -hmm. So that's free software as a social movement. Right. And free culture as well, obviously. And I mean, I think a That's a lot of what we talk about, really, is when we talk about community, I think we're really talking about fellowship. Mm -hmm. Okay, so on to Discovery. So that is the game as uncharted territory. So from a game's perspective, sometimes this is about discovering new things about like, oh, we cool, we, we found this new part of the world, we discovered something about ourselves, the, the true journey was the people we met all along, right? And the things we learned about ourselves or, you know, sometimes in many video games, it's about uncovering the map, right? You know, you've discovered and you've opened up new areas that you didn't see or could do before, right? So what about from a crafts perspective? How do you think uh, Discovery plays in? So a lot of the things I'm thinking about for Discovery might have overlap with the challenge. So figuring out how to do new things. And maybe you come up with your own method that is new or undocumented from other standpoints. But it could also be maybe sight reading a, uh, a pattern. So you don't necessarily know what the end product is going to be, but you kind of get there as you work it out. You're right. In many ways, this feels tied in with challenge since we cha- discussed challenge so much. <sighs> and actually, I think what's really interesting to me for this in general, including from the free software side, is the way that um, this, this section discovery overlaps with the previous sections because mm-hmm. none of these sections including discovery appear to exist completely independently but it's kind of how much it's weighted right yeah. so you know there may be parts of discovery in free software things that don't have much to do with challenge right which which is just you know oh yeah i found this new way of being able to do these things i found this bug is a challenge but also you know i i found this thing is itself the exciting part it's not just the challenge component but it kind of feels like it always has to overlap with some of the other things of either narrative or challenge or something like that. So just positing for uh, discovery and free software, that could also include finding documentation or code from a decade ago that people haven't really been using and finding new applications for it too, right? Yeah, one of my favorite books, A Deepness in the Sky, one of the major job titles in that book is Software Archaeologist, because (laughs) software is a relatively new craft, and most of the people who have been making software haven't died yet, though that's starting to happen. But what happens when you're on a ship 
on this this thousand year voyage and you've got the software that you've brought with you and you can't talk with other people very recently but you need to figure out how to get around this really weird moon and somebody wrote the equivalent of a Perl script 300 years ago that's perfect for the task but it doesn't seem to be working how does it how does it work how do you fit it for your task and so on and i think we're going to see more and more of this type of thing as software grows as a discipline yeah that makes sense okay so expression so that is the game as self-discovery. Right. So, I mean, again, we talked about kind of learning things about yourself can be really interesting. But I think that it's more than just discovering yourself. I also feel like some of this is, well, I mean, your ability to put yourself into the game. You know, part of it is discovering who I am, but also putting who I am into the the story. And, you know, this could be anything from oh, I play this game in this very kind of specific style. I really enjoy using the knights and chess because I like the way they move to I'm playing a role-playing game and here's the character who I think is really interesting mm-hmm. and a fun place to explore character-wise. Or alternately, you have scenarios in role-playing games where the GM might invite the players to help create some of the world or environment too. Right, yeah. And that world-building stuff really crosses the domains of fantasy, narrative, and expression. Yeah. Um, So what about in crafts? At face value, crafts are almost entirely expression, right? You are expressing yourself through your artwork. Um, And something about uh, what you're creating has a piece of you in it. That's the way a lot of people view crafts and artwork in general. So self-expression is a very large part of crafts. I guess that means it's a very obvious free culture tie-in. Exactly, yeah. So with free culture, it's interesting because if you're looking at an existing work, if it's released under a free culture license, then the audience can take that and mix it up and create something new or add on to it. So this encompasses things like maybe fan fiction or remixing work. It's Duchamp's uh, mustache on the Mona Lisa. So where you can take something that exists and alter it and make it your own in some way. That's really interesting also because Duchamp was able to add the mustache to the Mona Lisa because the Mona Lisa was in the public domain. But Duchamp Mm -hmm. gets very proprietary about other people affecting or changing his own work in a way that can be very ironic. And you also see that in things like fan fiction, where people copyright their fan fiction even though they... They're working off of some copyrighted work yeah. or off of some public domain work. Right. So, and it's it's interesting here because I think that expression is also a major place of fear, right? For in two ways. Sometimes people are afraid of somebody building on their work or the fear of influence, the fear that my thing is too derivative and mm-hmm. I've built too much on somebody else's work. Or, you know, you see this in a lot of times, the first time somebody plays a role-playing game, you see a lot of players who say, I'm really afraid to show up at the table because I don't think of myself as an actor. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm afraid of making that creative contribution. Though my experience in general is what's really nice about role-playing games is it's very easy to lose yourself in there, uh, (laughs) tie into the next section, and not think about acting anymore at that point because you just get lost in the role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So, um, how does Expression play into free and open source software? Well, I mean, again, I think we can see Expression tie in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, anything that overlaps with other aesthetic aspects could be seen. So if you're making a game which combines art and code, that's an obvious tie in. But even if you're not doing that, there's obvious expression choices, right? So the fact that I like lispy languages, languages with lots of parentheses, is partly a matter of what it provides from that structurally, but it's also partly a matter of expression. After a certain point, that becomes an aesthetic that I've become very attached to, and that even becomes part of my identity, right? Um, so, and hopefully also building tools that allow people to express themselves, I think is the other tie-in. Yeah. So on to submission. This is the one with the weirdest word. So what's submission? Game as a pastime. So, so there's been some controversy about the choice of the name submission here, but I actually really like it. So I think that submission is one of the things that you've expressed that you really get into into games. So why don't you explain, because we talked about this a lot beforehand, how mm-hmm. you see submission in games and why you enjoy it. Yeah, so I really enjoy repetitive games where I can kind of just use half of my brain to do that and maybe listen to a podcast or have a conversation on the phone or do other things. Uh, And that's largely like puzzle games or repetitive games just because it's fun and easy and doesn't require a lot of brain power, especially after, you know, doing a bunch of research or something like that. It's comfortable. It is comfortable, yeah. But then there's also the element of the amount that these things are immersive, right, and pull you in. But a lot of the discussion of game design ends up involving the idea of flow. But we've seen really interestingly that the idea of flow, which is that moment where you really get into the thing and are able to just kind of explore it as if it's like a second sense and like you just know everything that's coming next is a feeling that feels really good to people and is a really hard state to reproduce and sometimes where our best works come out, right? And I think that's interesting in the way that it plays in games. So this is where I think you and I maybe have some difference in games is that I don't enjoy games where I'm just zoning out unless if I'm combo zoning out with something that's challenging, right? So Mm -hmm. I like roguelikes where I'm zoning out and but it, I always have to be playing some sort of roguelike in some sort of new way where I'm trying something out. And eventually I get in joy in getting into the point where I'm just kind of zoned out and out there. But I have a harder time. Maybe I have a hard time relaxing. Yeah, I, I think that's an accurate <laughs> statement. <laughs> I yeah, I have a I have a hard time getting into that kind of flow just for the sake of comfort in the way that I think you do. Mm-hmm. And this sometimes comes up where uh, I'll be like, let's try something new. Let's play new games. I, I, you know, I brought home this new board game. Let's do it. And and sometimes you look at me kind of frozen up and like. Because I like the things that I like. And sometimes I don't have the energy to do something new. Yeah. And so this is really sometimes really a matter of preference. But as we also said, Flow can be really valuable to making things less scary, right? The comfort of falling into that role in a role-playing game means that that whole experience feels really natural, right? And I think for crafts, this is also a large portion of the crafts you enjoy too, right? Yeah. So in the challenge section, I talked about how 
you typically don't stay at that first level. You know, you knit a scarf and then with just, you know, basic rectangular scarf, no fancy stitches, and then you don't necessarily need to make 10 more of those. But it's also really nice sometimes to just knit a basic rectangular scarf while you are watching TV or sitting on an airplane or something like that, where you have just that repetitive motion that is familiar and easy and you don't have to think about it much. And I think I mentioned in the episode about textile production that spinning is kind of like the original fidget spinner, right? You can do that while doing other things and you get an output out of it as well. Yeah. And again, this is one of the things I struggle with, which is why planes are such torture for me, unless if I bring other interesting things to do, basically. So how does submission play into free and open source software? One thing we can say is about code flow, right? When you get to that point where you're coding something and you just get in the zone and you feel like you know what's coming next. And that's really satisfying and you can do a lot of cool and powerful things. And I love being in that zone. But one of the things that scares me a little bit is we had that episode about AI and machine learning is that I think this is one of the places where we're going to have things taken away from us most, right? The places where you get into flow are the places that tend to get automated away the most. And I think that's what we're going to see automated away the most in programming not Mm -hmm. too far from now. Well, and I think it's important in basically any field that you have kind of a combination of challenge and flow too, right? Like if your brain is just on and being challenged constantly, then you're going to burn out faster than if you do the challenging part of writing your code and then you get into the flow and you do some of the kind of simpler tasks and you can think ahead five steps to the next challenging part, but you have kind of that breathing space. So if we automate away the breathing space, then it might lead to higher burnout. I think you're absolutely right that being able to balance between challenge and flow is so important and is really relevant to when people find work to be satisfying, right? A really satisfying job tends to be one where it's got interesting challenges and then you get to the point in those challenges where you're able to just be really good at it Mm -hmm. and just kind of get in that flow and be good. Mm -hmm. But then you don't stay there forever. There's other interesting challenges ahead, too. Yeah, and that works for games as well, right? So if you're in a game that is just like nonstop challenge after challenge after challenge, there's only so long you can do that before you get worn out with the game. If you're doing a craft project, uh, like say you are knitting a scarf, you do the fancy border at the edge and then maybe 10 rows of just plain knitting and purling and then another pattern. You don't always have the next challenging thing. And even if you are doing the fancy lace pattern for your whole scarf, it's the same pattern over and over and over again. You aren't learning a new stitch for every row. I was going to say that there are very few games that have you just do one easy thing over and over and over again because Sokoban's fun moving blocks around, but it's fun because you're moving around the blocks with a purpose. And we don't really have that in games. But then I remember that there's a whole very highly criticized genre of games called clicker games, where like with the giant parody of that being cookie clicker, Mm -hmm. where you're just, you know, clicking the cookie constantly to get more cookies and then to unlock the power to make more cookies. Right. Mm -hmm. 
and like that is mindless and has a constant dopamine hit of the game saying good job good job basically but without you really doing anything Mm -hmm. um but those kind of things can be relaxing i guess so I think it's useful to revisit the Scrabble versus Bananagrams and risk versus pandemic dynamic that we talked about earlier. Well, so first of all, as we've discussed, we have a large overlap of the games that we enjoy, even if we can't play competitive games together. Yeah, I don't think it's wrong to enjoy something competitive with your friends. But it's good to do it with the kind of friends that enjoy that kind of thing. Yeah, the the kind of friends that can uh, that can enjoy good natured ribbing. Yep. And I enjoy various games that lean on the submission side of these eight rules that you just don't get into. And I also like word games and trivia games that focus on that competition against yourself and your own abilities, as opposed to competition against other people that you don't particularly enjoy either. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. And we can still find a lot of common ground of things to do together, even if we know that it's healthy to map out the space of what doesn't work as its particular couple dynamic. Yeah, and these rules have helped us figure out what problems we were running into in those early days of our relationship. And this is not just a relationship podcast, although uh, since we're co-hosting, it comes into it sometimes. Uh, So let's talk about how we might think about applying these same observations and ideas going forward. So I was thinking that it might be interesting to kind of incorporate this into a art history final exam at some point. So what do you mean by that? How Are you going to put the eight types of fun and they have to fill in what they mean for each one of them on there? No, I mean, people often view art history as the canon of art history. And to us, it's hard to look at these things that we study in an art history survey course as anything other than art with a capital A. But if we look at it in its historical context, a lot of these were created for enjoyment. So I think it would be interesting on maybe a final exam or a uh, paper prompt to give the eight rules of fun and then have the students provide an example of art that we covered over the course of the semester for each one of them and then explain in a paragraph why it fits within that context. That makes sense. So I think my big takeaway is the issue of inclusion and kind of the role that those of us who end up taking on leadership positions, but even those of us who end up participating in any community have in considering the construction of that community dynamic, right? So so one of the blog posts we're going to link to talks about this from a role-playing perspective for people who especially are the game master or storyteller kind of coordinator for a group. And one of the things that they said is, you know, when you are in that role, even when you're a player, but especially when you're in that role, you are a game designer. And I think that's really true in a lot of free software projects as well, that we are constructing some sort of dynamic. And if we don't think about what kind of dynamics result in what kind of behaviors and which ones kind of pull people in who may value different kinds of roles and perspectives and ways to have fun and feel connected to a community, then we could end up alienating or missing out on a really good community structure. 
Yeah, I think it's especially useful to look at it in this way if you're looking at community outreach. So different people may want different things out of their contribution to the free and open source software project. And different people are going to enjoy different aspects. So just because you really enjoy your command line interface doesn't mean that there aren't going to be other people who want to contribute to development who would want a graphical user interface, for example, because they have different hierarchy of uh, the ways that they enjoy things. And maybe they want to be able to submit icons for the project, or maybe they want to be able to write documentation, or maybe they want to be able to have a certain kind of interaction. But I think one of the things that we do feel is really important is that element of fellowship is really important to pretty much every free and open source software project. So you probably don't want to pit your players against each other like they're playing Risk. You probably want something closer to Pandemic. Exactly. Okay. So on that note, I feel like this was a pretty good episode and definitely went longer than the last couple ones that we did, but it was fun to walk through all of these. Yeah, so uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community hash Foss and Crafts on irc.freenode.net. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free and stay crafty. But we want to talk about this in relation to the sheet. Let me try again.